Reacting to the world's best science. The Naked Scientist Newsflash. This is The Naked Scientist with Chris Smith, with Kat Arney and with Dave Ansell. And we begin with a look at some of this week's top science stories. Kat? We all know that what we eat can affect our risk of heart disease and for years health professionals have been giving the message that cutting the amount of fat in your diet could help to cut your risk of heart disease. But it's not clear exactly how a high-fat diet contributes to heart disease risk as it's not a straight relationship between the fat you eat and the fatty compounds that get laid down in your arteries and cause problems. But now a new paper from researchers in the US, published in the journal Nature this week, provides an interesting new angle. They think that it might be the bacteria in your gut that turned fat in your diet into the gloop that clogs your arteries. Gosh, how did they work that out? Well, the scientists led by Zen and Wang started off by taking a relatively new approach, known as metabolomics, to search for molecules in the body that might be implicated in heart disease. And they took blood samples from people who'd suffered a heart attack or a stroke and compared the levels of a range of small molecules in their blood with the levels of the molecules in the blood of healthy people. And intriguingly, they found that people who'd suffered heart disease had much higher levels of three molecules that are all produced in the body by the breakdown of phosphatidylcholine, also known as lecithin, a nutrient that's found in a wide range of foods, but particularly in fatty foods. But we've known that eating a fatty diet is linked to heart disease for a very long time. So how did these scientists tie the role of the bacteria into it? Well, when you eat something containing lecithin, the enzymes in your gut break it down to produce a molecule called choline. Now, choline is very important. A lack of choline in your diet can cause liver disease and muscle damage. But then it gets interesting. Now, choline, in turn, is broken down by bacteria in your gut to produce trimethylamine. Now, this is a chemical that actually stinks of rotten fish. And this trimethylamine, in turn, gets taken in your bloodstream off to the liver, where it's turned by enzymes into trimethylamine oxide. And it's this chemical that seems to contribute to the formation of the fatty plaques that can clog your arteries and cause heart disease. But again, how do we know that the bacteria in the gut are responsible for producing this? Well, to prove the link for a start between a fatty diet and the levels of this bad chemical trimethylamine oxide, or TMAO, the scientists gave a lecithin-rich diet to mice that were prone to developing heart disease. And they found that, yes, this fatty diet increased the levels of TMAO in the animal's blood and the mice had more of these artery-clogging plaques. And to prove that the gut bacteria were involved, the researchers treated mice with some really strong antibiotics that completely nuked all the bacteria in their gut. And they found that the, the trimethylamine oxide, oxide, this bad chemical, was no longer produced. So what, what are the implications for people who have heart disease? Do we need to actually nuke out the uh, bacteria then to prevent it? Well, we actually need these bugs in our gut to help us digest our food and keep our guts healthy so it's not really practical or actually even possible to get rid of them all but if scientists can actually identify exactly which species of bacteria are producing this trimethylamine then it might be possible to specifically get rid of them alternatively you could look for some good bacteria that could help to control the levels of these bad bacteria that produce the chemicals and it might actually be possible for example to develop drugs that specifically block the enzymes in the liver that then convert the trimethylamine into the really bad chemical, the TMAO. And this research also helps to explain why a fatty diet 
with lots of lecithin in it might actually contribute to heart disease. Now, interestingly, and here's a twist, choline, which is produced by your body from lecithin, is sometimes taken as a health supplement. So this actually suggests that that's probably not a great idea if you want to be reducing your risk of heart disease. Indeed. It puts a whole new spin on you are what you eat, doesn't it? Thank you, Kat. Dave? Flaps on wind turbines may make wind power more economic. Wind power is becoming more and more popular. But one of the major reasons that it's still very expensive is that the wind is not uniform. On some days the wind blows very slowly, but on others it blows very, very hard, or even worse, provides really vicious gusts. This means you've got to build a wind turbine that can survive the worst gusts, which makes it far heavier than it would have to be for 99% of its normal use. Most turbines can feather or change the angle of their blades in very high winds to avoid damage, but this can be too slow to avoid the damage from a quick gust, so you've got to be very conservative about how you set your turbine blades so you lose a lot of power. So basically you end up with a turbine which is much chunkier, heavier, has therefore more resistance, more manufacturing cost than really it needs to on average. And it's not generating as much electricity. Um, A group from Rezo DTU in um, Denmark is working on a technology which may help. In the same way that you can change the amount of lift on an aeroplane wing by using flaps or aerolons when you control the plane, if you add a trailing edge flap onto the wind turbine blade, you can greatly alter the amount of lift it produces and the amount of drag, and therefore the forces on the structure. Apart from the obvious, the big difference between a wind turbine blade and a wing is that an aeroplane is movable and can be regularly maintained, um, whereas a wind turbine is normally in the most inaccessible place possible, and maintenance would completely stop them being economic. So it's very important to make these flaps maintenance-free. So conventional mechanical flaps wouldn't work. So the group is working on flexible rubber or plastic flaps, which can be activated by pumping air or hydraulic fluid into a specially designed cavities at the rear of the flap. As the flaps are much lighter than the whole blade, it can be activated far more quickly than this feathering system, so it can adapt to individual gusts um, without a huge use of energy which you need to twist the whole blade. And it should enable wind turbines to be built lighter and therefore cheaper. Have they actually road tested this? I suppose road tested is the right (laughs) word, but have they actually tested it to prove that it does perform as expected? They've built laboratory models which seem to work as they'd expect and they're now just about to build a real wind turbine with this technology on and see whether it works. Interesting solution, though. Thanks, Dave. Well, also, in a landmark breakthrough this week, Japanese scientists have used stem cells to grow a new retina in a dish. And this could hold the key to one day producing a replacement retina for patients who've been blinded by diseases or eye injuries. And to tell us more about this and how it works, we're joined by University College London researcher Dr Jane Soudan, who wrote a commentary on the work this week. Hello, Jane. Hello, Chris. So Um, do tell us first, Jane, what actually, in a little bit more detail, have these researchers been able to do? In this new study, um, Sassai's lab have shown that it is possible to grow the complex structure of the retina in a cell culture dish. So the retina is the complex layer of neural tissue at the back of the eye, which detects light and transmits visual information to the brain. And what's really impressive about the new study is that the synthetic retina were grown from an embryonic stem cell line. So these are the pluripotent cells which are able to generate all the different cell types in the body. So the starting point in these experiments is a set of identical cells. And what Sasai found was that under certain culture conditions, groups of the cells self-organized and spontaneously formed into a cup shape called the optic cup, which is shaped rather like a brandy glass. And from the inner layer of this cup, the, the retina forms. And indeed, it did 
differentiate in the dish. Why has this not been possible before? What breakthrough have they made so that we have been able to make this occur in a dish where previously scientists have failed? Well, one of the key components that they added, which previously um, was not used, was something called matrigel, which is a component of basement membranes. And so that seems to have been important for helping the cells to form into a layer from which the retina develops. And this process in human life would occur by around the sixth week of development. Now in their study they used mouse embryonic stem cells. So an important next step will be to see if the same approach can be applied to human embryonic stem cells. And what about uh, informing our understanding of how this structure does develop? Presumably because you can now make it happen in a dish, you can begin to interrogate it genetically and ask, well, what genes are being turned on in what cells in what order to make this structure form? Absolutely. I think it provides us with a new system to study how the eye develops, and that's important for understanding the situations where it doesn't develop normally. And I think it's also a very important discovery as it indicates that the embryonic stem cells do have instructions that allow them to self-organise and this will likely apply to other tissues as well as the retina and so maybe we're at the beginning of witnessing more abilities of embryonic stem cells to self-organise. Now you tantalisingly mentioned earlier, as did I in the introduction, that this might be a step towards being able to grow replacement tissue for people who have eye injuries or eye diseases that cause damage to the retina. Critically, in this paper from Japan, they use embryonic stem cells, but someone who's got an eye disease, obviously they're beyond the embryo stage by then usually. So is there another cell type that we might be able to make this work from in order to do what they've done for the mouse in the dish in a human? Yes, there are human embryonic stem cell lines, and I think the other possible source would be what are called induced pluripotent stem cells where embryonic stem cells are generated from other tissues and so either of those cell sources could potentially be used to um, generate new retinal cells that could be transplanted into the diseased retina in order to provide a, a treatment for retinal diseases involving loss of retinal cells. Do you think if we did get to that stage, if you were to take these newly generated retinal cells, if you were to put them into the diseased eye, that they would have a chance of restoring vision for that recipient? Yes. I mean, there is still a lot of work to be done, but we and others have shown that if you take immature photoreceptor cells and transplant those into the diseased retina, they're able to restore some light sensitivity. Now, in order to take that kind of approach to patients, it's essential to have a source of immature photoreceptors, and it's possible that these kind of synthetic retinae could provide a source of cells that could be suitable for transplantation into patients. And what sorts of diseases would you think would be amenable to being treated like that? So there are many different types of retinal disease that cause um, blindness. A large number involve the death of the photoreceptor cells, so the cells that sense light, and they would include conditions like retinitis pigmentosa and lots of different types of inherited retinal disease. 
which affect around one in 3,000 people. So those sorts of conditions um, could be amenable to retinal stem cell therapies. Terrific. Jane, thank you very much for joining us to tell us about the work. That was Dr Jane Soudon. She's from University College London. And you can find Motosugu Iraku's paper that we were just discussing there, as well as Jane's accompanying News and Views article in this week's edition of the journal Nature. Now, they say that manners maketh man. Well, it turns out, thanks to some researchers in the Netherlands, that a tidy street can also stop stereotyping. This is something of a surprise finding. Researchers have discovered that chaos and clutter cause people to be far more prejudiced than when things are kept nice and tidy. This is Diderik Staple and Sigvort Lindenberg, who are at um, Tilburg University. And what they did was to take advantage of the fact that there was a strike in the cleaning department at Utrecht Central Railway Station. So they went to the station when it was a complete mess and they did a survey and they asked commuters, would you mind filling in our survey about prejudice and discrimination? And while you're doing it, could you please have a seat on one of these six seats we've put here for you to sit on? And what they'd actually done is to sit at one end of this row of six seats, another person who was a plant. But the person who they planted was either a black person or a white person. And unbeknown to the people who were being asked to sit down, what they were doing is covertly watching to see where the person sat who was doing the questionnaire relative to the person who was already seated. And the amazing thing that emerged was that if a white person was sitting in the line of seats when the new questionnaire filler sat down, they would sit an average of two seats away from the person who was already seated. If it was a black person sitting there, they would sit an average of three seats away from the person who was already seated, but only if the station was messy, because when the researchers went back a week later and the cleaners were off strike and the place was pristine again, then there was no difference between where the questionnaire fillers sat relative to whether it was a black person or a white person in the seat. And they thought, well, we'd better check this out and see whether this is robust. So they then went to a street in an affluent part of a suburb in the Netherlands, and it was a nice, pristine street, and they stopped people in the street and they asked them to fill in a survey about prejudices and discrimination. And they then uh, asked them if they would accept five euros for their trouble of filling in the survey, which they gave them, and then said, uh, would you like to donate some money to this charity, which is for ethnic minorities? And people gave a certain amount of money. They then messed up the street. They parked a car on the pavement with a couple of windows open, knocked out. They put a bicycle like it had been abandoned in the street and they heaved up some of the paving slabs and did the experiment again. And guess what? This time, when the people took their five euros away and they were invited, well, would you like to give a bit of it to this charity? They gave far less. And they've done lots of different experiments um, repeating this, showing various other kinds of examples of chaos or disorder affecting people's effectively prejudices so it looks like if you are in a messy environment it makes you become far more discriminating and far more prejudiced than you would be in a tidy environment and their argument is that in a world in which chaos prevails people seek to simplify and seek to unclutter and part of that process is by reversing your mental thought processes back to a very simple set of simplifying rules which includes discriminating against people because you want to see simplicity, just you and your type knocking around, it would appear. And so they quite nicely say in their paper, and I'm going to quote from the paper it says, which is in Science This Week, signs of disorder such as broken windows, graffiti and scattered litter will not only increase antisocial behaviour, they automatically lead to stereotyping and discrimination. And here's the clincher, so maybe our local councils can all pay attention to this. Thus, investing in repair and renovation and preventing that neighbourhoods fall into disarray 
could be a relatively inexpensive way to reduce stereotyping and discrimination. What do you think of that? It's fascinating. I wonder if it's related to the way that you tend to get a lot more gang behaviour in sort of really grotty areas because it sort of sounds like it's making people a lot more tribal if, you, if they're feeling uncomfortable about their environment. And so if they've got a really uncomfortable environment, they suddenly become very gang-like and very tribal. <laughs> I, don't, I think you're probably right. I think people are reverting to type and they seek their own and viewing people of a different race or colour or culture as different to them. And I think it's an intriguing point they make. Tidy the place up, this prejudice goes away, and therefore you can spend a lot less money actually in the long run just tidying the place up than trying to educate people about not discriminating against people. Anyway, tell us about comets. Seems like some comets may have had a watery past. Um, comets are often termed dirty snowballs made up of water and carbon dioxide ice with a few rocky minerals mixed in. Um, they're thought to have formed way out in the cold outer reach of the solar system and they're deflected somehow into the inner solar system by some gravitational effect where the heat of the sun causes the water and carbon dioxide and other volatiles are sublime straight to a gas throwing out lots of material and forming the comet's tail. Because the pressure is so low, liquid water should never have been able to exist in this process. Um, and when you're a long way away, it's usually just far too cold for it. Up until recently, though, there was no way of proving this, but NASA's Stardust mission has made a close flyby of the comet Wild 2 in 2004. In this flyby, it flew in through the comet's tail, and mounted on the spacecraft was a plate made out of incredibly low-density silica-based material aerogel. This meant that any small dust particles hitting the plate were slowed down gently and trapped. The sample plate was then returned to Earth in 2006, and ever since, NASA scientists have been very carefully studying the grains of cometary material in that collection plate. What's turned up? Well, Eve Berger and colleagues are, are some of those who've been doing this study, and they have found a copper iron sulphide mineral called cubonite in some of the cometary grains. This is interesting because cubonite is only produced in the presence of liquid water, has two forms, one stable above 210 degrees Celsius, and the one they found, which is only stable below 210 Celsius, and it could only be formed above 50. So they know the grains must have experienced some wet conditions at least 50 degrees centigrade, and they haven't heated up very hot in between. So either this cubonite was created somewhere else and got integrated into the comet, so maybe it was created close into the solar system and then thrown out and then formed into the comet. Or possibly even more fascinating, it was actually the comet has somehow heated up and melted partially in the process, either when it came near to the sun but it shouldn't do because it would need to somehow sustain the pressure or in some kind of impact. Certainly a mystery, so how are they going to solve it? We'll have to study some more grains and ideally go and have a look at some other comets and it shows the importance of actually going and looking at things because you'd never have found this out by just sending a robotic probe and looking at the comet from outside. Indeed we wouldn't. Thank you, Dave. Well, if you want to read up anything uh, that we've covered this week, then the references as well as transcripts for each of those news stories are online now at thenakedscientist.com forward slash news. The Naked Scientist News Flash. Reacting to the world's best science. For more information, look us up online at nakedscientists.com.